You know, the messages that we're opening with is called a study in contrast, and I'm going to talk about that in a moment. You'll notice that a lot of the imagery we're using has to, has to do with the, the idea of moving through the cross. Jesus, for Jesus, the end point was not the cross. He went through the cross. The cross brought him to a place of resurrection, the empty tomb. And that changed everything. It changes our lives. It changes the entire way in which we uh, see our world. And so everything about this idea of journey through the cross is what we're going to be looking at. Now, stay with me on this point because, you know, we could have looked at this from many different ways. But we're going to try to focus specifically on the account of Matthew, particularly the last three chapters, 26, 27, and 28. We're going to be informed by different pieces from the other Gospels. You remember the four accounts in the Scriptures that give give us the life of Christ, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's a lot to say there. But Matthew has a unique perspective, and we're going to be focusing in on how he approaches this. And you know what? When you read the Gospels, what you realize is that so, many, so much of the, of the Gospels, the, the books are devoted to the last week of the life of, of Christ's life. And so a significant amount of attention is given to the details surrounding the final week of the Lord prior to the cross. And so we're going to be peeking into that. We're going to be moving into that. We're going to be looking at it. We're going to be sitting with it. But one of the things I love about it is because not only for some of us will this be a refresher, for others of us this will be like the first time we've actually examine these things. Some of us have just begun to follow Christ. Some of us aren't even quite certain we've even started that, but we're real close. Others of us have been doing this for a long time. And for us, it might be a refresher. But the thing is, our life changes all the time. And so the way in which our life can impact, be impacted by God's word, even stories that we've, we've shared around you know, numbers of times can just be very different. And also, the fact is that there's so much there for us. Just when you watch Jesus engaging people, I don't know, something about the, the personal components that are in this story, whether it's with Peter or Judas or, Mar- or the Marys in the story or Pilate, there's so much going on that we maybe find ourselves connecting with one or two of those individuals, and it just makes it even more meaningful and real for us. So, and, and then on top of all that, there are these great principles that we're going to be sitting with and, and hopefully reflecting around as we sort of make our way together to the celebration of the cross and the resurrection. So keep all that in mind. We're going to come right now to the 26th chapter of Matthew, verse number 1. And I want us to look at this right from the outset when it says that when Jesus had finished saying all these things, that's how we start this chapter. Now, okay, it begs the immediate question, right? What things? It says when Jesus had finished saying all these things. Well, the things that are being referred to, and it's important actually to at least acknowledge what they were. Because it lends something to what happens here. It sort of creates a platform for what they're about to experience. You know, prior to this, Jesus had entered into Jerusalem. Uh, There had been this triumphal entry. We celebrated Palm Sunday. You know, this idea of everybody was welcoming Jesus in. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But, But between then and that time, in this time right here, Jesus had shared some things. And if you just go back in time in in the passages that precede this 26th chapter, for example, go to the the 23rd chapter of Matthew, there's this exchange that occurs between Jesus and the the Pharisees. It's one of the most stunning, compelling, uh, intense exchanges that Jesus has with with anyone. I mean, there are things happening in that chapter that uh, have tremendous uh, power, and uh, he, he's talking about stuff that really gets to the core of issues. There's the 24th chapter, which Jesus then continues on after he has this exchange with the Pharisees. 24th chapter, he starts talking to the disciples. And these are, that's the first part of these things that's being referred to. He starts talking about things that would have caught our attention as well. 
Interestingly enough, he starts talking about what's going to characterize the last days of the human race. He starts talking about how there are going to be nations rising up against nations and upheavals of every kind. He talks, and honestly, as I was revisiting it, it's hard not to, you know, sort of just think, wow, you know, this stuff's some of the stuff's happening now. I'm not saying anything beyond that except to say that, you know, it's amazingly relevant, the things that Jesus was talking about. He was talking about social upheaval, uh, the upheaval of nature. And, of course, the span since his, his, his death and his resurrection, we've called that in a big picture the last days. But within the framework of that, there's going to come a point, Jesus said, where things are going to be reordered. And in fact, that's what he talks about in the 25th chapter, which is the chapter immediately preceding the one that we're looking at. He starts talking about how there's going to come a day where he's going to come in all of his glory. Uh, the nations are going to be reordered. There's going to be a, a judgment and setting things in right place. For the first time, the world will know peace in a way that... Has, I mean, he's just... He's t- this, it, okay, here's the point. There's this panoramic discussion that Jesus has, and the disciples must have been listening to this going, oh, my... I mean, it was, it was amazing. He's talking about marvelous things, concepts. He's looking into the future, the glorious future, and he's just unveiling things in broad strokes. And they must have been just kind of like caught up, rapt attention, just listening to his words. And then it says Jesus paused. And after he had said those things, he said this. Verse 1, look at it. He said to his disciples, as you know, Passover begins in two days. And the Son of Man, I just want you to know this, is going to be handed over to be crucified. Now, you've got to understand, he's just been talking about ch- change and the coming glory and big picture. And then all of a sudden, it's like Jesus takes out a cup of water and goes, Whoa! throws it right there. It's like, whoa. Right? And, and he says, and, oh, yeah, in two days, it's going to be Passover and I'm going to be handed over and be crucified. And it was like, <laughs> what? And, and, and we know that, you know, the Passover, by the way, it's impossible to, to miss the connection here. I mean, when we really look at it closely, it, it says so much to us right here. Passover, what, did, what was the Passover? You know, Passover is still celebrated today um, in this, this part of um, the world, every part of the world, really. I mean, the Hebrew people have always honored the Passover since the day they were delivered from, from uh, Egypt. It, the Passover feast was a spring feast. It was, in many ways, the commemoration of their birth as a nation. Remember, they had been in, in Egypt, enslaved. They didn't, come there that, they didn't come there as a nation. They came there as a clan, but they, they multiplied rapidly over the centuries, and before long, they were an enslaved people. A pharaoh rose up that did not know Joseph, the Bible says, and eventually, this, they grew into a nation, but they were enslaved. God ultimately delivers them. Remember, he raises up Moses. He tell, Moses has this confrontation with Pharaoh. Let my, God says, let my people go. He won't do it. No, there's this tension, this battle that occurs, this you know, competition of wills. Eventually, the, the will of Pharaoh is broken with a mighty hand because God sends, um, he says, I'm going to send a movement of death. He called it the death angel, and it's going to pass through the land. And he told Moses to tell the people to do this. He says, I want you to have a lamb slain, and I want you to take that blood of the lamb, and I want you to put it over every door of every house. And, and the, if the blood is on the door, if the blood of the lamb is on the door, the, the, the death angel will pass over, hence Passover. And you understand that that's what initiates the breaking of Pharaoh. And there's this moment where they are free, a free people. And since that time, the Passover has been celebrated. The center of the Passover celebration, the remembrance of that moment of deliverance and redemption was connected to a lamb. And so the lamb becomes the centerpiece, uh, a slain and roasted lamb becomes the centerpiece of the feast. 
the remembrance. That's what's going on. And you know what's amazing is when you think about it, so many of you read the Bible and you go, wow, how many, in the Old Testament, you go, oh, there's always talking about these sacrifices and blood and, and representing of life and lambs and, and, and what's going on, the Passover and all. It's like the Bible is filled with arrows pointing in a direction to something. And what it's doing is it's pointing, everything about it is pointing to the, to the ultimate Lamb of God, to the ultimate sacrifice that will not just set a people free, but a world free. And so it's talking in so many ways about the coming one who will give his life, his blood, so that we might live and death would pass over us. Now, that, now that's one of the reasons why, and, and if you think about it, when Jesus is first introduced onto the scene at the beginning of his public ministry, John, who they call the Baptist, John the Baptist, the forerunner, the one who initiates the beginning, the one who said, look, I am not the one. People were following him. He said, I am not the one, but I am about to announce the coming of the one, the one who's been promised. And it's interesting because when John acknowledges Jesus at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he could have used any designation that he wanted to, king, you know, Messiah. Look what he says, John 1. He says, behold, cast your eyes upon the one there he is. Behold, the Lamb, of, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of this world. That's the opening designation. He was coming to give his life away so that we might live. It's, it's there all over. The, all the Old Testament points to this moment. John points to this moment. And now Jesus is talking about this moment. Here's the thing. Nobody really understood. With the exception of the Lord, nobody really understood exactly what was happening in this this drama we call the cross, the, 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 the tragedy and the triumph of it. Nobody really got it. Everybody, all the people involved in it, the disciples, Peter, Judas, you know, think of Herod, Pilate the governor, the Marys, uh, you know, all, all the, the cast of characters that are connected, even hell itself is revealed as not having an understanding of what exactly was taking place on the cross. And yet Jesus is moving towards it. And so the, the, the things that we're going to look at have to do with the movement of Jesus towards that for which he had come, to give his life away and give it, as the Bible says, a ransom for many so that we might live. We who were dead might live in Christ. Now, let's look at the third verse and we'll kind of push forward into this. It says, at the same time, leading priests and elders were meeting at the residence of Caiaphas, the high priest, and were given an insight that they were plotting, they were literally plotting how to capture Jesus secretly and kill him but not during the Passover celebration uh, because they agreed that the people could riot if we're not careful here and we cannot afford that. You know, you've got to understand that Caiaphas, the high priest, whose own position was dependent on the blessing of Rome, by the way, um, as well as the other leading, leading priests, clearly saw Jesus as a threat to their power base. And, and, the, and honestly, you go back and you read Matthew 23, and you can see why this happens. I mean, you want to talk about not pulling any punches. It's, it's a stinging indictment of the Pharisee. I mean, Jesus walks in, he's in the temple, and he says, you know what? He already knows they're, they're, what's in their heart. And he says, you know what? You, you men um, are absolute hypocrites. He says, you, you say one thing, you do another. He goes, you know what's in your heart? Murder's in your heart. He says, you know what you're like? You're like whited sepulchers. A sepulcher was, was a grave site that was painted white so that people would know not to touch it because what was inside of it was unclean. Dead, dead, dead things were inside, rotting bones. He says, you know what? You're like a whited sepulcher. On the outside, you look good, but on the inside, you're full of rottenness and dead man's bones. You, make, you are blind leaders of the blind. People who follow you are destined to fall in the very ditch you're leading them into. He starts getting into them. You tithe, mint, uh, you know, and come in. You're, you're deep 
detailed. You focus on the minute things. He says, you're great at that. You major on the minor, but you missed the major. He says, you should have done those things, but, you have, you, but not neglected the other things like mercy and justice. I mean, he starts going at them, and it's just one after the other. Woe unto you. Powerful stuff. He says, he, listen, he turns to the people in front of all of them, and he says, listen, do what they say, but don't do what they do. And he says, you are a brood of vipers. I mean, you read it, you go, whoa. And you are, you, he goes, and you have murder in your heart, even now. He says, just as your forefathers, he says, when God sent his prophets to you, he says, from the beginning, there was a history of murder from Abel all the way to Zechariah, he says. He's talking about from the book of Genesis to what would have been the end of their, their scripture, Second Chronicles. He says, from the beginning to the end, when God sent his people, you have killed them. And he goes, and you want to kill me too. It's like, you are, and then you just lay, it's just right there. It's intense. They hated him. They hated him. We want him dead. Problem. You gotta understand the backdrop of this, it illuminates everything that's going on. This is a time, a unique time in history that it, the world had never seen it like something quite like this. You gotta understand, there, there had been a history of world powers, especially in what was then the known world, the Mediterranean, parts of Europe, the East, uh, particularly this part of the world where we had seen the emergence of powers, particularly military powers, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, um, the Medes and the Persians, uh, the Greeks under Alexander, Ama amazing, amazing movements, but no one had ever seen anything quite like Rome. The Romans had an exquisite ability to borrow from the, be the best of from cultures and had implemented a system of domination that had been unparalleled. They had established what was known as the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. It, it was a Rome that was settled, it was a peace that was settled by Rome with force. Every nation must bow. The banner of Rome must fly. Taxes must be paid, which is, by the way, why you'll hear things like the publicans. They were the tax collectors, and they were despised by their own people because they collected taxes for Rome. And that money went to Rome. And by the way, Matthew is one of those guys. He's a tax collector. He's one of the ones that had been working for Rome prior to coming to follow Jesus. So you know, this is an ongoing issue. The reason I'm bringing that up is because there had been this uneasy peace that had been uh, settled into where Rome had done something that they didn't normally do. They had agreed to give uh, Judea, uh, in particular the Jewish people, at the time, a, a unique autonomy that was not commonplace. They um, allowed them to have a higher degree of, of self-regulation, as long as things were kept in order. And so the, the high priest, when you see this verse like this, you, the reason they're so concerned about not wanting anything to riot, Josephus says that at Passover time, there may have been as many as two million plus people coming in and out. The, Jesus had been welcomed in. He was very popular with a segment of people. Many people believe he was Messiah. Remember on Palm Sunday, which is celebrated before Easter Sunday, that they, it says that they had palms crying loud Hosanna, saying, blessed is he as Jesus came through the city who comes in the name of the Lord. So they were aware that there were a significant section of people who really thought of Jesus in a, in a very positive way and recognized him as something uniquely sent by God, and yet they themselves were convinced that he must die, and so they've got this dilemma, but we cannot create a scenario where there's a tumult, thus Rome will come in and take away whatever autonomy we've been able to establish, which Jesus, by the way, said, and just stay with me on this, that 70 years later, he prophesied, he says, someday Rome is gonna come and it's, it, there's gonna come a devastation in this city, and, and sure enough, 70 years later, the city was just pummeled down, right? I mean, well, 40 years later, 80, 70, it was pummeled down to the ground by Rome um, in the rebellion. But at this time, 
Jesus was just simply acknowledging a reality that was going on. Okay, I say all that to say that they were trying to guard themselves, and they were hoping to try to catch Jesus in a situation where it would not create a public stir. That's, I said all that to say that, okay? So we come now back to verse number six. It says, now here's the contrast. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany, just a little bit removed from Jerusalem. He was at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. So one track, you have the, 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 the priests plotting. Now you see Jesus and his disciples over here on another tract, each making their way to, to a nexus point. Meanwhile, Jesus is in Bethany. He's at the home of, of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. While he was eating, there was this woman who came in, and she had a, a beautiful alabaster jar. And in that jar, which was a beautiful jar and expensive in its own right, contained an even more rare and expensive perfume. And that perfume, that ointment, um, was extremely costly. And she proceeded to pour it over the head of Jesus, which was a way of anointing him. And perhaps, and most likely, either while he was reclining or seated, she made her way in and did this. And we also know from the other accounts that she washed his feet as well with it, their hair. It was, it was, it was, it was a moment that um, the disciples, this, the only way I can describe it is they were disturbed by what was happening. Look what it says. Because, by the way, that perfume, it would have been, by most accounts, it would have been equal to the value of a common laborer's annual wage. So it was significantly costly. All right? This is what it says, verse 8. The disciples, though, when they saw what was going on, were indignant. They were indignant with what they saw. They said, what a waste this is. What a waste. Look at it. What a waste. This is, uh, this, 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 this. Perfume, it could have been sold, this ointment, for a high price, and the, and the money could have been given to the poor. Should not this have been done? What a, what a waste here. And it was really hard to argue with their reasoning. I mean, Jesus had lived a very restrained uh, life. He had, he had advocated generosity to the poor, um, the oppressed in the societal pyramid. He had loved them deeply, and they loved him. Uh, Jesus is kind of unique in this way. He, he did not exclusively come and say, um, I pity your plight. He said, blessed are you. He said, blessed are you. You know how blessed you are? He said this to the poor and the ostracized. And they said, why are you calling us blessed? And he says, because the kingdom of God is here for you. And uh, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, it, you know, adjudicate on whether or not you have much or little. It's free for all. And therefore, you in your poverty even more have been given this blessed opportunity to receive what it is that God has for you with no cost. The love of God is before you even now. Rich man, poor man. In fact, Jesus would say that it was available to anyone who would come uh, with no distinctions. Think about this. And that, you know, you would think, oh, yeah, Jesus, you know, he, he, he hated the, the wealthy. He only worked with the poor. He loved the poor. The poor received him gladly, the scripture says. But he was also uniquely able to move into, into the realm of those who were more wealthy and, and who had more power with equal ease. He could celebrate with them and talk with them and challenge them to live in a way that was honorable before God and be a gen, let their generosity be indicative of a life that was lived as a blessing for others as well. I mean, Jesus, he, he really had this beautiful way of moving in all directions at a societal level. I mean, and he himself, though, had nothing. He had very little. He chose to live that way. He says, son of man has come. You know, I have nowhere to lay my head. You know, foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He goes, I have nothing. I'm dependent. He was dependent on the benevolence of those who supported him. That's the truth. Many of whom were wealthy women, if you read it. Read it. Uh, that's just a fact. Jesus had one purpose, he said. He had come to give his life away. I mean, if you think about it, to save this world, he had come to give it, his life away. 
Um, and that, that serves as a background for everything that we're going to see here. Now, he, they say, look, this is a waste. This is a waste of money. This should have been given away. What are you doing? They wanted, you know what they wanted Jesus to do? You need to reprove her. You need to set her straight. You need to correct her. And, and, and this, this misguided deed, and you need, to, you need to expose her as a spiritual lightweight because this is wrong. And, and, and Jesus says to them, look at verse 10. He says, look, look, Jesus, aware of this, aware of this replies, why do you criticize this woman for doing such a good thing to me? Once again, we as they were are reminded of how difficult it is to put Jesus into a box. He says, no, 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 no. Guys, you shouldn't be criticizing her. You should be applauding her. What you call a waste, I call a good thing. You want to know why? She sees something you can't see. Do you know why she's doing this? And I don't know if she understood exactly why or not, but this is how Jesus interpreted it. Look at it. He says this. He says, look, she has poured this perfume on me to prepare my body for burial. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you a truth. Listen to me right now, that wherever the good news is preached, and I say this throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. And we're doing it right now. The very thing Jesus said is happening right now. It came to pass. It's happening all the time. He says the very thing that she has done right now will be remembered and discussed. Think about it. Jesus is saying, you know what? People are going to talk about this for a long time. And it's, it's, gonna, and it's good. And I want them to. Because it says so much. Then, then it says, you know, we know a couple other things. In John's account, it's implied that the woman was Mary of Bethany, who was the, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, and that she had also washed his feet. And the other implication in John's account is that there was one disciple who was pushing the envelope even farther than the rest of the disciples. They were all doing this. They were all criticizing. But one was even at the forefront of that, and that was Judas. And he, he makes the easy play. The Bible also indicates that he himself had issues. And it's interesting because the one that's often the most critical is the one that is hiding something frequently. And Judas was hiding his own heart. He had been stealing over time, we're told. But he himself now says, shouldn't this money be sold and shouldn't this perfume be sold and given to the poor? I mean, it's a very pious statement. But one thing we know is it must have, it must have been for him just one more development of the tipping point, maybe even the tipping point at some level or real close to it. Look what it says happens next in verse 14. It says, then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples, went to the leading priests and ask them, let me ask you a question. How much money will you pay me? See, money's all over this thing. He was offended over the wasted ointment because it could have been sold for money to give the poor. And he now says, in regards to that waste, how much money will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? I can, if I can find a way to, to let you get him that does not allow for a public scene because I know where he is and where he goes, if I arrange it, will, how much will you give me? They settled on 30, 30 pieces of silver. That was nothing. That was like paltry compared to the larger. I mean, it was like, it's like, what are you doing? You almost give the impression there's spite in here. There's, is, and there's so much going on, and we're going to talk more about that in the weeks ahead. But it says that from that time on, look at verse 16, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. So he, he begins to seek out the appropriate time. Now, keeping all that in mind, in the time that we have left, quickly, I want to just submit a couple of things. And these are more like um, things for us to think about and reflect on, talk about a little bit, 
Think about, again, as we're moving towards Easter, my hope is that we start to just get our own heart ready to celebrate this moment. Let me throw a couple things on the board here. Let me, as we look at this text, as we look at the contrasts that are going on here, the contrast between the, the, the leaders and Jesus, the contrast between this woman and the disciples and Judas, we see contrasts everywhere between what they expected Jesus to say and what he did say. You know, what he saw was happening, what they were perceiving was happening, just everywhere. But let me suggest that firstly, Sometimes um, the appropriate, it's appropriate for love to be extravagant in its expression. And I, I, in this passage, we see the connection between um, common sense, really, and love and, how, and what a contrast there really is. That there are times when uh, prudence and the way of the heart are in conflict. The way of prudence and the way of the heart. From a purely economic and charitable, charitable standpoint, um, Judas and the disciples were correct, technically, I suppose. But from the way of the heart and how Jesus was looking at it, this was but a small token of devotion to express the gratitude of what was about to happen. You see the difference? Can you hear me when I say this? This life with Jesus, this Christian life, it, it really is, at its core, a love story, not a law story. It's not legal, it's love whenever we miss that, we've missed the essence of the gospel. Because why did God give his, give his son for us? You want to know why? We know it. We say it. God so loved this world. He loved us. We sing about it all the time. You know, whenever we reduce something like this Christian life to rules and regulations, and, and it only becomes religious sort of tr- tokenism, if I can use that phrase, we, we miss what it was meant to be. It, it always it, it always is, at first, at its core, central piece, a way of the heart. Jesus says, you know what? Uh, more than I want your service and your diligent attention to the details. Remember, that was the very criticism he had of the Pharisees. You do everything really good. He says, you, you, uh, you can uh, you know, strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel, right? That's what he said. You're really good at it. He says, but you're missing, you're missing. The heart of God is missing. This is about a love. This is about a love story. It's about. It's just that you, you, you can't like just always put everything so precisely and 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 get it contained. He's like I said at the heart of this. This is see following Christ. It, yes, there are principles. There are truths. There are there are ways in which we are to, right ways to go and believe and things that we need to allow inform to inform us and correct our character. I get that absolutely. There is a there are moral ramifications to following the Lord, but at, at its core. It's about a relationship and it's about our heart. It's a love story. That's the love of God that won't quit on us, that gives everything for us and calls us to grow in our own capacity to love him and to love others in his name. At the end of the day, Jesus said, you want to know what the true fulfilling duty of a human being is at its core? Let me tell you, he says, learn to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Focus on that, loving God, truly loving God. And then secondly, learn to love others. And I always like to say, start with the circles that are most immediately connected to us. Because if, if it's not showing up in the home and in our relationships, it does really undermine what we're doing externally beyond it. You know, So let's, let's start there with our own hearts. So, but here's what you, I think you hear what I'm saying. At the end of the day, Jesus is saying, this is about love. This is about loving God. It's about love on fire in your heart. It's about a devotion that doesn't even count the cost. My friend, you're counting the cost. You're making it an issue that it doesn't need to be. You're missing the bigger issue here, and it's her heart and her love for me, and that means so much. See it? Powerful. Secondly, sometimes, I'm, I'm going to just, 
kind of put it out there, but sometimes people, even those whose opinion we care about, are going to criticize um, our devotion to, to Christ is wasteful. And I know it can almost sound like I'm, I'm, we're talking like a victim. I'm not meaning to do that. I'm just saying as you know, early on in my Christian life in particular, I mean, I had people tell me, hey, you know what? You just need to calm down, dude. Uh, <laughs> this Jesus thing, you know? And I get it. There were probably things I said wrong, and I was very zealous, and I'm sure there was, actually. I'm positive, because I was very clear about everything, right? And I didn't know how much I didn't know yet. Um, all I knew is I loved the Lord, and I want other people to love him, too. And it mattered to me that people could know him, because I wanted them to live and not die. And it meant a lot, and it still means a lot to me. At the end of the day, it's what fuels this whole thing anyway. It's trying to honor God in our lives. And you know what? Sometimes people say, you're foolish, why are you doing that? You know, calm down. Don't be, don't, it's okay to have it as a little piece, but don't get overboard on this thing, you know, play. And I understand that. I'm also into sensibility. I understand that. But you know what? Love has reasons. And, and love doesn't always just say, oh, let me just decide here, check off the box here, double check, and then I'll decide. It sometimes just says, I love you. I'm in. I'm with you. I'll follow you. And some will say, you're crazy. It doesn't matter. Because I know him, and he's changed my life. People say, come on, man, There's, we got to be smarter than that. Don't be gullible. Don't be dependent. Don't be weak. you got to be strong. you got to be self-dependent. you got to be your own man. You don't need this crush to lean on. Jesus says, where is the fool of this world? Where is the wise man? Where is the disputer of this age? The Bible says, he says, I tell you that God has, has chosen the weak things of this world to confound the wise. The cross is foolishness to those who do not think it means anything, but to those who believe it's the power of God under salvation. To the Jew first, also to the Greek. I am not ashamed, Paul says, of this good news of the message of Jesus Christ. And it's powerful. It's a powerful thing. Listen, who is the true, of true fool? You know, Jim Elliott said this. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. By the way, that was a man who put up because he gave his life as a martyr taking this message of Jesus to the jungles of Ecuador. And the people who took his life eventually came to know Christ. Powerful, powerful, powerful stuff. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. To follow Jesus is the way of life. Listen, I'm contending for it. I say, yes, I am. Thirdly, finally, there are going to be times when we, and, and I, I don't know how to put it. I probably could have put it in some other way, but this is how it came out. We must always habitually suspect our own righteousness. That's the last thing I'm going to say. And what do I mean by that? What are we talking about? I'm talking about, you know, always factoring in our own capacity to get things wrong. The disciples thought they saw it really clearly. You know, this is, this is, this is, this is improper. It's a waste. You know, they should have been done this way. This critical, this is, they began indignant when they saw this. What a waste. You know, this, this, is, this idea. Jesus replies, why criticize? He's saying, you know, you got a critical heart. You got a judgmental heart. Your heart is, you got the heart of the very people that I've been having an issue with. It's inside of you right now. Stop that. that you don't understand what's even happening. You know what? You need to look at your own, own heart right now. And there's that ten. I always, what I'm saying is, there all, we need to spend a lot of time, let's be firm on our own selves and gracious to others. Really. Let's really guard against having that critical spirit, that judgmental spirit, that offended spirit that so easily is trying to decide wherever. You know what? Let's focus on our own heart. Jesus said, you got, you, you're missing it. Listen, because if we don't pay attention to our own heart and stay humble before God, you know what? We can get in the same kind of attitude that if we don't bring it into check, it can lead us off course away, listen, away from Jesus. We can get, we must always remember, we are capable of misreading Christ. 
and what he's doing in someone else. Don't, we must, and even in our own heart, we must always say, what is that inside of me? And Lord, I need your grace and I need your forgiveness. So teach me to be a graceful and forgiving person. Even as we contend to do what is right in your eyes, challenging ourselves to grow, to live with an increasing wholeness and integrity that, that reflects a consistency of what we say we believe, what we're taught by Jesus, and how we're actually living, that we take ownership over our own lives at the same time, extending an extraordinary level of graciousness towards those around us. This we will do, and we will stay in harmony with the spirit of Jesus. And, and, and we get to decide how we want to go. Now, as we enter into this Easter week, weeks, and this month, that are, this month ahead that's coming, I want us to be thinking, if we can, about what it is it would look like in our lives to honor the Lord and to go his way. And my sense is, and even the song that we're closing with, and by the way, the song, if I can, is going to start out gently asking a question and making a statement. And then there's going to be this moment where it just pushes into it with passion. And that, and it's going to say, Lord, I'm going your way. There, here's the thing. It's designed for us to say, Lord, I want to choose to follow you. But then there are these moments where we just say, you know what? I'm with you, Jesus. I am with you. I don't even, I am just there. I am going to follow you, even whether or not, it, it, you know, I might even count the, I'm, I'm with you. I'm going your way. Now, there are areas of our lives where my, God might be challenging us, and we get to decide, are we going to do what he wants us to do? So what I'm going to say is, in these, as we close out here, let's just each of us all be thinking. Some of us are young. Some of us are in the middle of our lives. Some of us are older. You know what? We don't even know the span of our days. We've been given this opportunity to live for God and to bless others. Whatever our days left, and may they be many, let us live well. Let us live well for God and live close to the risen Savior. We get to decide what that's going to look like. Maybe for some of us, God is calling us to a certain path. We get to decide, are we going to do it? Maybe for some of us, God's calling us to make some changes. We get to decide, are we going to do it? The way of Christ is not always an easy way, but it's the right way. It's a way of life. If any man will come after me, Take up his cross daily. Deny himself. Follow me. All right? There's no such thing as a cheap grace that really works. All right, let's pray. All right. Lord, we want to we ask you, and, you know, as we're getting ready to close out here, and we're going to have our time of giving in this song that we end with, Lord, we've just been talking about. I want to ask you to just keep working in our hearts, Lord. And I care, I care about your cause. I care about who you are, Lord. Um, you, you are the life changer. You change life. You change people's lives, Lord. Um, I've seen it. I've watched it. I've seen it in my own heart, Lord. And I just pray that you would keep us uh, open to you, tender, humble, always, you know, really suspicious of our own tendencies towards pride and, and, and towards missing things that, that we think we know, but we don't really know, Lord, just to walk a humble path, um, a gracious path, a growing path, Lord, a, a path that leads us towards you, not away from you, Lord. We want to, any, any day, Lord, I just want to say, I'd rather be like Mary of Bethany, accused of being wastefully uh, devoted to you than, than Judas and the rest of the disciples tightly holding on and, and filled with judgment, judgment in their heart right now in, in this way, Lord. I, I just want to pray that you just open us up to your grace. Uh, help us not to be heard in a hurry. We'll just finish this well together and we just receive these last moments together as if it were our closing prayer of this song. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.